1: Welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by Kate Pickett to discuss the mental health effects of inequality. You can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast and you can also follow on Facebook and Twitter. It's at PolTheoryOther. If you like the podcast, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. The podcast now has its own Patreon page. If you're a fan of the show, any donations would be much appreciated. Uh, There are some fixed costs to doing the show, and obviously sound editing and preparing for guests takes up quite a bit of time. So if you are a fan and are able to spare something, your donation would be very welcome. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. If the number of supporters reaches 200 people, I'll be starting a fortnightly bonus episode that will be available only to patrons. Kate Pickett is Professor of Epidemiology at York University and the co-founder of the Equality Trust. She's the co-author of the best-selling The Spirit Level, Why More Equal Societies Almost Always Do Better, published in 2009, and also The Inner Level, How More Equal Societies Reduce Stress, Restore Sanity, and Improve Everyone's Well-Being, which was published last month by Penguin Alan Lane. So in the, uh, in the new book, The Inner Level, um, that you co-wrote with uh, Richard Wilkinson, obviously you're looking at the relationship between inequality and mental health uh, and clearly this is closely related to the previous book, The Spirit Level, which looked at the broader effects of inequality. Before we discuss the new book, could you briefly outline the key findings that you discuss in The Spirit Level?
0: Sure. So in The Spirit Level, what we were doing was showing that um, Inequality, income inequality was related to a very broad range of health and social problems. Um, The health problems included things like lower life expectancy, worse levels of mental illness, um, higher rates of infant mortality and obesity. But we also showed that inequality is related to a range of social outcomes, more violence, more imprisonment. Um, lower civic participation, uh, a breakdown of community life, lower levels of trust, and also inequalities related to children's life chances. So we found lower educational attainment, less social mobility, more teenage pregnancies in more unequal societies. And we found these relationships whether we were looking at rich developed countries or across the 50 United States. The second thing we found was that the difference between these societies was very large. The effect of income inequality was much too large to be explained by what was happening just to the poor in those populations. Um, which leads me sort of to the third finding, and that is that inequality is it's it's like um air pollution really. Our colleagues at Harvard University describe it as a social pollutant. Um, It affects everybody in society, so those were the the three main messages from the spirit level, Um, inequality affects a wide range of problems, the differences are very large, and the whole population is affected.
1: So in the new book, you're specifically looking at the question of, of mental health and how it's impacted by inequality and how that varies considerably between different countries. What does the data tell us about the psychological consequences of, of living in very unequal societies?
0: Well, they're very profound. Um, in a way, our new book is focusing on the pathways through which inequality affects us and the way it it does the damage and causes all of those um, worse outcomes that I described a few minutes ago Um, and we had theorized when we showed those data about 10 years ago that the likelihood was that this was because when income inequality is is larger the status differences between us matter more where you come in society matters more and because we all see each ourselves through each other's eyes Status, class, relative position in society all become more salient and more important in a more unequal society. But at the time we wrote The Spirit Level, that was just a theory. And now we have evidence from epidemiological studies um, of lots and lots of different countries that indeed anxieties about status are higher in more unequal societies across the income distribution. They're more profound at the bottom of the social ladder, but even in the top 10% of incomes, you see more anxieties about status in more unequal countries. And this is sort of what underpins a whole range of mental health outcomes that we see are worse in more unequal societies.
1: One of the questions that's commonly raised is that of causation. How can we be sure that inequality is, is the cause of the problems that you're describing and, and not simply the, the correlate of them?
0: We're epidemiologists, Richard and I, you know, this is, this is observational science. We are unable to conduct experiments, you know, and make one society more equal or less equal and see what happens. And so in epidemiology, we have, I say we, I mean the, the discipline as a whole, we've developed a set of criteria for assessing whether or not a relationship is causal. And that's always based on a holistic look at all of the evidence. So we look to see if if income inequality changes, does health and social problems fluctuate in a way we would expect? So we now have longitudinal studies that look at change in income inequality and change in life expectancy or mortality rates or child well-being, and we even have studies that show how long it takes for the effects of those changes to come into play. Um, We look for things like dose response, you know, as income inequality gets higher, do we see an even higher level of problems. We look for consistency across different settings. So we now have studies from across the world, studies of Latin American countries or regions of china that provide consistent evidence we look for things like um, biological plausibility is there an explanation for how these relationships um, might play out and in 2015 richard and i published um, a review in a peer-reviewed journal um, a causal review of all of the evidence on income inequality and health and there are well over 300 papers now and it's very consistent with a causal explanation.
1: In in terms of people's individual psychologies, um, y- you describe what appear to be on the face of it sort of uh, contradictory effects that inequality has upon people. You talk about how some people respond with uh, classically depressive symptoms, a tendency to avoid social interaction uh, in order not to experience feelings of inferiority and the pressure of, of constant comparisons. But but the other effect you describe is a is is a kind of narcissism coupled often with uh, with with a large degree of uh, aggressivity. How do you explain these apparently uh, contradictory effects?
0: Well, it turns out they're not contradictory at all. Mm. One of the things I um, one of the recent advances in understanding um, psychology is that we have a model in our brains. it's the dominant submission behavior. Um, and this is a very, very ancient system within our brains. You know, animals have it, fish have it even, you know, um, but certainly primates like us. Um, the dominance behavioral system is how we operate when we're in situations of um, relative status differences. And some people. Um, react in those circumstances with dominance behaviors and some with submissive behaviors. And so finding that both submission-related illnesses such as depression and anxiety are related to um, inequality makes sense, but so does finding that narcissism, self-enhancement, and some psychotic syndromes, many of which involve delusions of grandeur, are also a consequence of greater inequality. So we're all different. We all react to life in different ways, but we see both of these kinds of pathology being more prominent in more unequal societies because status matters more. And so the ways in which we individually react, um, get enhanced.
1: So, So really it's a variety of coping strategies that you're describing
0: exactly and that's why we also see what you might think of as a third kind of response which is all of the coping behaviors that people use when they feel anxious about status Um, more alcohol use um, more illegal drug use Um, we have found that problem gambling is related to inequality as well Um, and also status consumption and consumerism over consumption and consumerism because it's through what we spend on on status goods that we try and show that we're doing okay
1: Regarding advertising, in, in the book you mentioned that advertisers tend to throw more dollars at societies where there is greater inequality because th- that desire to acquire material goods in order to ameliorate uh, those feelings of, of inferiority are, are just that much greater than they are in, in more equal societies.
0: Yeah, and that, I mean, to be honest, that was a bit of a surprise. The psychologist Oliver James um, wrote a book called Affluenza.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think that probably came out um, even before our spirit level book, and in it he describes having an interview with somebody in Denmark who said, "Oh well, advertisers don't bother spending money here because they know we're not susceptible, you know, to their messages." And it sounded a little bit far fetched to us, but um, when we actually got hold of the data, you know, spending on advertising per head of population. It is indeed true, there is much less spending on advertising in more equal countries. I guess advertisers might have been onto this faster than epidemiologists, public health people and economists.
1: Presumably they have more time and and resources to to devote to understanding the public, uh, I suppose.
0: Indeed, yes.
1: Another effect you describe in the book is these quite concrete physical manifestations of, of stress in the body. Uh, That are induced by status anxiety. One of the effects you describe is is that of the immune system being put on uh, a state of near constant alert, as if the body anticipates needing to repair wounds uh, due to some perceived threat. Could you say something about these biological uh, effects?
0: Yes. I mean, I think this is one of the major contributions of social epidemiology over the past three or four decades. We've come to have a really good understanding of how um, the biology of chronic stress underpins health inequalities and differences in health. It turns out that, you know, we're extremely sensitive to social stressors, but they act on us just as any other stressor would. Um, So if we're constantly exposed to stress, then all of our bodily systems are affected, our immunology. Our reproductive system, how we use energy for muscles or not. Um, There are emotional and behavioural and cognitive effects of chronic stress, which are really well understood now. And all of those are affected by the social environment.
1: So um, could you go into just a little more detail uh, about these uh, physical manifestations?
0: Well, the immune system is suppressed. Um, less energy for reproduction, cognition is dampened. Um, it's 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 the flight or fight response. So if we are stressed in an acute situation, we have to mobilize all of our bodily resources to cope with that, and so we shut down all of the sort of normal physiological stuff, and we just concentrate on getting blood to the muscles and hormones, stress hormones ramped up so that we can get away from a threat very quickly. But if we're doing that all of the time, then the negative impact is not having all of those normal systems working normally all the time. And in a way, chronic stress, it's a bit like it's a bit like aging. Everything gets stressed for long periods of time, everything gets dampened down. Um, and the cumulative effect of that is very profound.
1: I suppose one of the consequences might also be that the more affluent just have a greater difficulty in extending empathy and understanding to people lower down the social scale um, because they experience the world in such a, such a different way.
0: I think you're making a really profound point, actually. Um, one of the things that has disappointed us about, you know, the release of the inner level is that the reviewers that it has been sent to at major newspapers are all upper middle class white men, um, Oxbridge educated, part of that sort of privileged elite, um, who perhaps have less access to understanding the lives of people who are very different to them. Whereas when we're speaking to wide audiences, you know, we always see people nodding and, 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 and really feeling that what we're saying relates to how they feel about their lives. And it's very, very clear that inequality creates social divisions among people, distances people from themselves. So less trust, less civic participation, more segregation of different classes. And that's bound to lead to less understanding across those divides. Um, And I think that's, you know, part of the reason we see a rise in populism, part of the reason we see um, the referendum results for Brexit and the election of Trump. There are vast swathes of the population who feel left behind and not engaged by society. And there are people at the top who don't have any experience of those other people's lives and, and it's very difficult to empathise across those divides
1: It's interesting what you say regarding the media and the places the book was sent to um, I'm a bit of a, a podcast junkie unsurprisingly and, and one of the shows I listen to is the the Spectator uh, daily podcast um, mainly just to see what conservatives are saying to each other but uh, I've sort of realised that in spite of not having any political sympathy with, uh, with those people um, that I do quite enjoy the show. And I think part of the appeal, uh, particularly coming from a left perspective, is just listening to these people who sound profoundly relaxed and uh, very comfortable in, in their in their own skin, uh, which I think probably does contrast significantly with, with left media, where I think people's insecurities are often uh, quite palpable. That's not to say there aren't uh, plenty of leftists who, uh, who are confident and, and whose confidence sometimes derives from coming from relatively privileged backgrounds. But there's a relative uniformity at places like The the Spectator.
0: Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, that confidence is attractive. People who sound like they know what they're talking about and are very confident about their opinions. But I think, I think we have a level of mental health crisis in very unequal societies. Um, which means that there must be an appetite for the message that we're putting forward in this book. Mm -hmm. Um, The Mental Health Foundation, in a survey that was reported about a month ago now, found that 75%, three quarters of adults in the UK, had felt so stressed at some point in the last year that they felt unable to cope. That's an epidemic of distress. Um, And... People need to be listened to. Those experiences need to be heard. And the problem with our media, our political pundits, our politicians, indeed, is that they they don't share that experience enough to be able to to hear that level of distress.
1: I suppose one of the key things in what you've just said is, is that word enough? Uh, because as you point out in both the new book and, and, uh, and in the spirit level, it's not as if the effects of inequality don't impact negatively upon the rich as well, but it's uh, a, a question I suppose of, of differential impacts. Is, is that what you, would, uh, what you would say?
0: Yeah, we're all affected, but it's, it's, if you're doing quite well in an unequal society, Um, I suppose it's quite easy to think, well, these things don't apply to me, you know, I'm not going to commit a murder, I'm not going to be in prison, I'm not going to have a teenage pregnancy, my children are going to do well at school, Um, but those people are living in a bubble, they're separated out in a way and they lack access to the experiences of others and don't realise that actually even they would have an easier time in a more equal society. They would be more likely to live longer, have better mental well-being. Their kids would do better, etc. But they've done so much to protect themselves from an unequal society that it is hard for them to access it. I think.
1: Um, why is it that even the rich would uh, do better in a in a more Equal society. I mean, I mean, if the you know, if the one percent of, of uh, the UK or the United States um, transition to the experience of the one percent in in Denmark, what why would that be uh, an improvement even for them?
0: Um, I think because inequality has such profound effects on the whole way in which society operates. Um, we can't do visuals today because we're we're just doing audio, but we often you know raise our hands and make a, a steep pyramid and say some societies have a very steep social hierarchy and some have one that's much flatter um, and in a more egalitarian society all of those anxieties about status become relaxed and it's interesting when you see studies of of people who talk to rich people who are they're constantly affected by status anxiety about trying to keep their end up as well. Nobody's immune to the ways in which inequality makes status more salient, makes class and status um, strengthen their grip on us.
1: I wonder if the, the fact of, of inequality having negative effects even upon the rich helps to point to the systemic nature of the problem and uh, might perhaps encourage people to focus less on a, a sort of moralistic approach that's concerned very much with pointing to the greed of people at the top as the cause of the problem and, and instead points to a more, a more Marxist approach, I suppose, that views the logic of, of capital accumulation as, as the real uh, root of the problem.
0: I'm not sure that you necessarily need a Marxist interpretation. A psychological interpretation might well be enough. But it's very difficult when people have vested interests in the situation remaining the same to convince them that actually um, things could be better, things could be different in a more egalitarian society. I think when we published The Spirit Level, we thought that our job was simply to point out the damage done by inequality and then somebody else would you know, um, mm. pick up that evidence and move it forward and, and make change. Um, it hasn't happened. We're still suffering from the huge rise in inequality that happened in the 1980s um, in the UK, the USA and many, many other countries, the impact of neoliberal economics um, and policy. And so I thought, you know, all we have to do is show them that this is bad for them as well as for everybody else. But it, it's quite a difficult message to hear, I think. Um, yeah, I think we, we constantly try to think about how do we get the message to those people that it's in their interests as well, uh, but it's not easy.
1: In terms of the impact of the spirit level, I'm sure it's informed uh, the messaging of, the, of the, the left in the UK to a significant degree. Uh, and obviously we have a very different situation with the British Labour Party. Uh, a lot of their messaging is focused on the problems of inequality in, in a much more robust way than, than was the case um, when Ed Miliband was in charge, for example. Um, do you feel that the book has had a positive impact upon uh, the left?
0: Yes, but I think it's been much more than that. Um, Not only were we showing the impact of inequality, but also the time that the book came out was just after the global financial crisis. And so a lot of people were starting to think about alternative ways of structuring our economies, thinking about um, what economies should be for. And we've seen a real a real sea change in the way people talk about inequality. Nobody was talking about inequality um, back in 2008. And now we hear people talking about it at the International Monetary Fund, at the World Economic Forum, at the World Bank, um, at the UN. So inequality reduction is now one of the 17 sustainable development goals. Um, So, it's not just on the left that we've seen that shift, but I would say that we see much more acceptance of inequality as a a problem that needs to be dealt with at an international level. Um, I'm about to go away um, this week to serve on the Commission for Sustainable Equality at the EU. Um, And we also see action at local level, lots of local authorities setting up fairness commissions but not much action at the national level. So our book came out in 2009. In 2010, we saw the imposition of austerity economics, which has worsened the situation for the UK. And so although internationally and locally, we see an acceptance of the evidence and people trying to do something to create more positive change, we're not seeing that in the UK at the level of national government.
1: I wonder if some people aren't perhaps uh, fully aware of what a potentially huge struggle it will be to actually do anything about inequality. Um, you mentioned in the book the social democratic consensus of the post-war era where inequality was significantly reduced from the 1950s onwards until the neoliberal offensive of the late 70s. And obviously there's a number of uh, historically specific contingencies that allow for that. There's the effects of the Second World War. Uh, during which the state intervenes in the economy uh, far more than previously. There's the discrediting of finance capital after the Great Depression. And then there's uh, ideological competition from the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, which at that time is very real. Uh, communism has, has genuine appeal in much of Western Europe at the time and, and really forces capitalism to, to show a slightly more human face at home. Um, in uh, in Thomas Piketty's work, uh, he, he argues that it's this Post-war era that is really the exception, rather than the eras of uh, more extreme inequalities, such as the the Gilded Age and the era that we're living in now, that are, uh, in his view, the rule.
0: I'm not sure he's right about that. I listened to a talk by Danny Darling recently, and he was taking a much longer historical perspective than Piketty. Um and he's not convinced that you know the 20th century was exceptional. When you have um, broader progressive movements then inequality can be reduced but I'm struck by what you said about you know it being so difficult to do anything about it. The trends in inequality over the last 150 years show that change can happen and quite rapidly either in the right direction or the wrong direction and governments you know can barely move without having an impact on inequality. So it is about political choices and there are so many things we could do to reduce inequality. Um, We write in the book about um, the difficulties of relying on progressive taxation systems. The danger of relying on those to reduce your inequality is that a change of government can lead to a change in fiscal policy almost overnight. And that's why we write much more about trying to increase economic democracy and get greater equality more deeply embedded in the culture of workplaces. Um, But all of those changes could happen at the same time. I mean, we would love to see progressive taxation, action on tax havens and tax avoidance and evasion alongside an expansion of economic democracy But you could add to that everything that is done to improve children's lives um, and a focus on early life um, protection and enhancement of services um, for poorer people um, around parenting and early life. Everything that governments do can affect inequality and if we just sort of added up all of the positive things that could be done and started to put them in place. I think we'd start to see incremental change, positive change, quite rapidly.
1: In terms of the question of extending democracy into the economic sphere, in the book you talk about fostering cooperatives and, and you also discuss the Swedish Meidner plan of the 1970s that sought a, a, a gradual transfer of control of corporations to workers. Um, what is it about the logic of extending democracy into the economy that you think would have uh, such beneficial effects in terms of reducing inequality?
0: Well, I think extending democracy into the economy helps to reduce income inequality at source. It means you're trying. It means you you are able to reduce income differences before taxation. You don't have to rely on taxes and benefits and the welfare system to fix the problem. And the reason that um extending economic democracy has that effect is because whenever you allow people voice in an institution, it will have an inequality dampening effect. If you allow employees onto company boards or cooperative um, or employee-owned models of of business, people aren't going to sit there and go, oh yeah, I think it's a really good idea for the person at the top to be paid 400 times more than I am. Um, So there's a dampening effect on pay ratios there tends to be a boost in um, incomes at the bottom as well as a reduction at the top but most importantly we also see rises in productivity with those models of business ownership because economic democracy turns a company from being a piece of property into more of a community where everybody has a voice everybody feels more engaged everybody wants to contribute more um, and, and so I think it's a very low cost, low worry way to move towards greater equality. We could start to incentivize businesses to shift some of their share ownership to employee owned trusts over time. There's a lot that we could do to grow that sector of the economy incrementally. Um, and as it does seem to outperform other modes of, of business, then I, th- you know, I think that would get legs, and we would see a greater expansion of inequality-reducing forms of business.
1: It, it's interesting the point you make about productivity being higher in cooperatives, and 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 what this suggests about potential productivity gains in a more democratic economy. Um, because obviously business articulates everything it does in terms of uh, efficiency, productivity and, and fiscal responsibility. And, uh, you know, biz- business sort of makes out that it doesn't make political decisions. It, it solely makes economic decisions that, that are uh, for the benefit of the wider Uh, society. Um, But it's quite clear that ownership and and the priorities of of ownership uh, really do uh, trump all other considerations.
0: Yes, yes, but it flies in the face of the evidence. One of the charts that we include in our new book shows that among um, large companies in the US where the chief executives are paid more than average, they return less to shareholders than companies where the CEO is paid less than average. And there's a you know there's a very large literature you know not not from us at all but from economists and management specialists showing that these different forms of business ownership you know do result in um, better outcomes in all kinds of ways. Um, those businesses tend to be more socially and ecologically environmentally responsible as well so it's a win-win really to shift our ways of doing business. Into a more democratic mode, it won't hurt the business case, um, and it will provide an inequality reduction and an enhancement of people's well-being. So it's it's a win-win, really.
1: I suppose the way I think of it is that uh, you know, in the in the abstract, it's a it's a win-win, but but there's very little to make me think that you can actually win a, a elites over to that perspective.
0: Yeah, I think it would be hard, but there's so many examples across the world of where this kind of thing is working well. Um, We took part in the York Festival of Ideas recently, and there was an afternoon panel which included a representative of the Mondragon cooperatives in the Basque region of Spain, Mm -hmm. um, which are incredibly successful, very, very stable employment, uh, pay ratios of six to one, It's certainly working well there, and there was also a representative of a group that helps promote what's what tends to be known in the UK these days as the Preston model, where you get anchor institutions in a local area to commit to investing locally and to preferentially working with cooperatives, social enterprises, um, employee owned companies. And that model is proving extremely successful, not just in Preston, but in many other areas of the world. And apparently the Scottish government are thinking about adopting that as some kind of national strategy. So I, I don't think we need to feel that this is a sort of utopian, pie in the sky, cloud cuckoo land, dreamland that could never happen. I think there are lots of examples that are starting to come online showing that this can really work.
1: Just to return to the question of mental health, um, one slight concern I felt reading the book and, and this isn't really about the argument that, that you're making because I don't think it is it, it is your argument but, but I sort of worry that readers might potentially take away a slightly too simplistic understanding of, uh, of mental illness. I mean, I I sometimes slightly worry when I hear people pinning their mental health problems solely on on contemporary capitalism or or even uh, neoliberalism specifically. Um, And it's sort of this focus on um, everything in the here and now about their work and their contemporary situation uh, rather than thinking additionally about their own uh, personal history and their childhood family relationships. Obviously, there doesn't need to be any strict dichotomy between the two, but uh, I, I do th- think sometimes on the left you see a, a sort of dismissal of the Freudian perspective that comes out of a, a slightly simplistic reading of, of work in the anti-psychiatry tradition that, uh, that makes me a little nervous sometimes.
0: No, that, that's a very interesting perspective, but for too long it's been the other way. Mm. For too long, anybody who had a mental illness or problems with their mental health would only be encouraged to think about their own individual characteristics, their own individual behavior. Um, and that has led to most people who do experience mental health problems, feeling shame, experiencing stigma. Um, and there's never been a r- much attention on the broader social determinants of mental well-being, But we see astonishing differences in levels of mental health by inequality. So in the UK about 23% of us have had a mental illness in the past 12 months and in more equal countries it's less than 1 in 10. That's a huge difference and it really shows that it isn't just our genes, it isn't just our individual histories. Society does matter and that's been neglected. So I think this is a necessary corrective actually to the way that things have been. Um, and last last week we were speaking at UCL and a young woman stood up and described her experiences of mental illness throughout her life and said she had always been made to feel by the system that it was something in her that was wrong. And the understanding that actually society can play a role had given her confidence and strength to actually be able to address her mental health problems. Um, and mental illness is at epidemic proportions in the UK at the moment. Levels of self harm, suicide on the rise, levels of depression and anxiety are out of control. And so I think this is a necessary new perspective on how society can affect our mental well being. And it can either be promoting it, can be working towards greater levels of population mental well being or it can be destroying us.
1: What you were saying about the the woman at the event that you just mentioned uh, raises the question of, of meritocracy and how uh, people are made to feel that they've failed at the meritocratic game. And uh, this idea that uh, if we do indeed live in a meritocracy, that therefore if you're not doing well, then that's your responsibility. It's uh, it's your fault for the, uh, the predicament that you're in. Um, could you say something about the relationship between meritocracy and rising inequality in the neoliberal era?
0: Yeah, so I mean, very much in more unequal societies, the idea of meritocracy is used to sort of explain, underpin um our toleration of greater inequality. You know, we think that, oh well, everybody could do okay if they just work harder. But what we show in the inner level is how profound the effects of the macroeconomic environment are on family life. So parents have less time for parenting, um, more worries about debt, more mental illness, more addictions, etc everything about family life gets more difficult and more constrained in more unequal societies. And that's why I think we see that social mobility is so constrained in more unequal societies. You know, we often say that if you want to live the American dream, you should move to Finland or Denmark, um, where social mobility is much more likely. and so this this is something that really I think needs to come into the public debate. You know, there's so much focus on people having natural talent and innate ability. But what the data show is that the environment shapes how well children do from before the time that they are born, but certainly through all of that early childhood period and schools. And we don't have systems that are set up to foster everybody's talents we focus on a very limited kind of cognition that we reward um, disproportionately and we don't think about what kind of education system is it that we need to create the kind of contributions to society that we want and how should we value those
1: the standard objection to trying to do anything about uh, inequalities is to argue that competitiveness and uh, acquisitiveness are sort of hardwired core parts of human nature and that any attempt to reduce inequality will be defeated by those supposedly immutable uh, qualities. How do you respond to that argument?
0: Yes, yes, we hear that all the time. You know, <laughs> we, we can't address inequality because it's just a fundamental aspect of human nature we're individualistic, competitive, and out for ourselves. Um, What we show in the inner level is all of the strong anthropological evidence that actually, for most of our time as human beings, we have lived in more egalitarian, cooperative, reciprocal settings. So we're not saying that we can't be competitive and individualistic and aggressive. We're not saying that that is not part of our human nature. What we're saying is that we also are very, very capable at being more social, more reciprocal. We're good at those kinds of relationships as well, and which we choose to um, foster and which get fostered by societies depends on how hierarchical they are. So you need different strategies in different societies, but by no means is our nature uniformly competitive and aggressive.
1: You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you enjoy the podcast, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. You can also follow on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.